morning, Mark, and welcome back to the Rockall Paleo Show. Good morning. Great to be with you. It's our pleasure, absolutely. And uh, good morning, Monsieur Mark. Oh, good morning. The, the Mark the Mark the second or Mark the first, I guess. <laughs> I mean, you took me by surprise, and I'm I'm not used to being sort of um, addressed in such polite tones. So, <laughs> <laughs> are you implying something here? No, far from it. Would would okay. I dream of doing something like that? Okay. Well, all right. So, uh, Mark, our guest, that is. Thank you for coming back on our show to talk about your COVID-19 experience. And uh, could you uh, give us a quick reminder of who, who you are, what you do, and all that good stuff? Indeed. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a physician in America. I live in, in Massachusetts. And my formal role is director of population health and community care. And it, this is really a a model of health in the United States that is, is placing much more emphasis on public health, prevention, wellness. Uh, we're a little bit late to that game in the US, as, as you well know. So a lot of my work involves developing infrastructure that links our clinical services with our community-based resources in a way that can really level the playing field. Uh, we know, and I know we'll get into this during the interview, Alan, that we know that many people of lower socioeconomic status, ethnic minorities, um, in addition to having been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic, uh, certainly struggle with, with many barriers to care. And so that's a lot of my professional work. And I, I love what I do because uh, I'm a specialist by training. I'm a kidney specialist, a nephrologist. So for a good part of my early career, I was in hospitals, critical care settings, dealing with very sick individuals. So it's nice to be dealing with prevention and actually trying to help people empower themselves. And, and of course, the pandemic has changed everyone's life and um, uh, certainly made my work uh, very interesting. So you're uniquely qualified to speak about this. Uh, uh, that would be interesting because God knows Mark and I have our own opinions on, on this big mess. Yes. So uh, before we go into that, uh, do you have anything new you'd like to mention? Uh, a book, a program or anything, you, a project that you're working on? Yeah, you know, thank you for asking, uh, Alan. I, I'm not working on a book right now. Um, Though I, I have a lot of ideas in my head, uh, I continued to do a podcast called The Health Edge with a, a colleague of mine, John Bagnulo. And I find that, as you know, um, Alan, in your, your podcast work, you, you can often reach a lot of people all over. And so I enjoy that as a platform for, for connecting with others. Um, I also am involved with some projects uh, with the National Wellness Institute. Uh, this is one of the oldest uh, centers in the United States that uh, commits to training in the education of wellness professionals. And so a lot of our work is to train professionals to be better prepared to do the work that they do. And I think the pandemic has, has changed a lot about how we think about the work that we do and what people need. And so that, that's been a, a, an important project for me and that's just ongoing uh, work. So um, life is uh, rich and um, um, you know, all, it's all good. 
Okay. Well, if you say so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, some I, some yeah, other. I, I figure out. You know, if I keep saying it, I might eventually yeah. actually believe it, and uh, I've come to appreciate the the power of beliefs. So. Right. Right. I'll, I'll some people it. out there might disagree with you, but. Yes. Um, Let's get into uh, what has been your experience so far with COVID-19 and we'll, we'll talk about you know, policies and, and you know, what happened for the people, for the whole country actually. Um, so you personally, uh, have you been impacted? Uh, how? Yeah, certainly we, we uh, have been impacted and continue to be impacted by it. Um, where I live and work in, West, in uh, Western Massachusetts. We were one of the uh, earlier communities in New England to begin to see uh, reports of COVID, which brings us back to uh, mid-late March. Mm -hmm. And um, I also uh, see college students, uh, not too far from Williams College, which is a well-known liberal arts college. And many of these students uh, who, who travel all over the world, had lots of respiratory symptoms over January, February. You know, my, my sense is that this was probably around long before we uh, first identified it, but our first official cases were in mid-March. And um, we um, live in a market where we work very closely with a lot of our boards of health and public health uh, professionals. So it Fortunately, compared to some larger cities like New York City, which is just two hours south, uh, about 120 miles, 60 kilometers or so south of, of where I live, a very different ecosystem. So we were able to limit the, uh, the magnitude and the severity, you know, as some, some refer to flattening of the curve. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it probably took us um, about six to eight weeks to do that, we, you know, we had we had several uh, deaths in our community, and and not unlike what what has been reported around the world, these tended to be older individuals, uh, many of them in in uh, what we call skilled nursing facilities. Some might call them nursing homes, um, and and so um, that's where most of the impact was most severe. Um, I, I think what I have seen since that time and, and the activity in Massachusetts has since gone down quite a bit. Most of the cases reported in our region now are people who've traveled outside the region to some areas of the United States with more activity like Florida or, or the Southwest and have come back um, with it. Uh, or we, uh, we do have a lot of tourism out our way and so we have had a lot of summer visitors from Florida and other parts of the U.S. Uh, where we have seen our other cases. But I, I do think we've, we've kept it in check. And much of what affects people now is just the fear, fear of the fall season, the influenza season. How bad will this be? How will it affect schools and students? The fear, uh, I've been struck with how profound and persistent that has been and that and that raises a whole nother uh, issue in terms of yeah health, yeah our, our Anyhow, overlords I'll, I'll leave it at that yeah yeah our overlords have been very good at uh striking fear in everybody's yes. um heart and and uh what unfortunately what is never approached is the 
preventative and uh, supporting an immune system. Instead, we always talk about death and this and that and cases yeah. and so on. And just to keep the fear going until we get a vaccine and then they plan to vaccine all of us. So um, right. we'll, get, we'll get into that a little deeper. Personally, how have you been affected or have you been affected at all? I very gratefully, uh, Alan, I've, I've not um, been sick at all, nor has my family. I've had some friends uh, um, with COVID, none of whom were seriously ill, uh, all recovered uh, uneventfully. Um, I live in a relatively small community, so you, you, you tend to know some people who are impacted in more significant ways. But uh, to be honest, uh, I, I never felt better, had a pretty good winter and uh, summer, and, um, and, and I do believe very strongly in, in what you were saying about the need to be emphasizing things that we can do to render ourselves more resilient. We don't have to be victims and innocent no. bystanders uh, through this. And I think that's a huge message. But I do believe it's a shame that the uh, quote unquote medical system not only is not making any suggestions about supporting our immune system or strengthening, but uh, actually ban any information. And I'm talking mostly social media, but you can see that in mainstream media as well, banning any information that would um, you know, guide people into better health instead of like living in fear and, and, and waiting like for vaccine, like, uh, the second, you know, second coming or something. Yes, exactly. And, uh, if you look at the, the infrastructure in the United States, the center for disease control, um, you know, from the get go, it was quite clear that uh, they were overwhelmed. The message, as is true of the medical industrial complex, is you know it's it's the message of the antiviral drug, uh, the the you know the hanging hopes on the vaccine, and trying to quickly get a vaccine to the marketplace with what we all know will be very limited testing and, and safety data. Um, very very uninspiring leadership in terms of empowering people. Uh, and, and, and helping people appreciate the power they have to render themselves more resilient. And um, it, that's really been the, the, the framework of, of, our, of our national response. And anyone outside the U.S. can, can see how um, poorly we've handled this really from the get-go, well, including you know, our messaging. Actually, compared to France, you've done, this country has done a lot better. Uh, France has completely bungled the whole mess and uh, much worse than it is here. Uh, you know, because of course I keep my ears out to Europe as well, both through my friend and family in France, but through Mark in England. Um, regarding the CDC and the FDA, I personally think that from the uh, the outset, they dragged their feet way too long, you know, uh, waiting to make suggestions or, and then they switch and completely fear, you know, uh, scaring the crap out of people. <clears throat> Actually, I like to call uh, the the head of the CDC, uh, Dr. Faust Chi. Faust Chi. Anthony Fauci. Yeah, no, I, I call it like Faust. <laughs> no, I, yeah. Yeah. I, like uh, I mean the guy is so I mean I have you know I know we might 
get into a territory you might not be uh, comfortable with. But the guy is so connected and potentially corrupted uh, by the pharmaceutical industry, it's not even funny, you know. And um, the dimension, uh, as for, actually, I'd like to get your opinion now. What's your opinion on this whole uh, chloroquine? Uh, what, is, what is the proper word for that? Chloro Hydroxychloroquine. Yeah, yeah. What's your take on that? Well, yeah, I mean, there's been so much controversial um, and contentious information uh, from, from very early on here, uh, um, Alan. And I do think uh, the data that we had was so limited uh, and, and to some extent uh, biased. Um, you know, I, th there were many anecdotal reports of hydroxychloroquine along with uh, azithromycin, uh, which, which is a traditionally used as an antibiotic for respiratory infections. And zinc. Uh, having some efficacy, and, and these were some of the earlier reports out of China. And um, um, I, I think people, including myself, were hopeful that, uh, you know, that, that would be something that we could certainly use for people who weren't as uh, critically ill um, uh, and I think much of the evidence that has emerged would suggest that if there is any efficacy, uh, it's probably in those that are more mild to moderately ill. Um, but it, it's still, you know, not considered that effective. While the remdesivir, this antiviral, which has been approved by the FDA, uh, which was never a very effective antiviral to begin with for HIV, uh, actually has approval while hydroxychloroquine doesn't. Um, right, right. But that doesn't mean approval doesn't mean it works, whereby the other treatment has been proven in France by um, Professor, what's his name, um, Raoul in France and uh, even in New York by another doctor in New York that's been uh, treating his, uh, his patients with it. I yes. mean, he has made a study. There was also another study that came out fairly recently. And this treatment has been used uh, pretty much all over the world, you know, off and on different countries, different, uh, used a lot in Africa because they're familiar with that particular medicine yes. because it's used against malaria. Yes. So as long as it's taken early on, you know, unlike the studies that have been completely debunked by the Lancet and otherwise, uh, you don't administer this treatment late in stage because it's already too late. You need to start right. early on and then, you know, uh, there's a specific um, uh, protocol to follow, you know, and, and, and it's safe. You know, you just don't pop up uh, pills just like that. You have to follow your doctor. But for whoever doctor that actually will prescribe that kind of and I know one in Austin, uh, she's a friend of mine actually. And mm. she told me anytime you need, uh, you know, I'll be able, I'll be glad and help, able to help. Now, you know, or you assume that Mark and I are very strong on preventative measures and so on and so forth. I've never been affected whatsoever. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, the, the shame is, of course, that the pharmaceutical industry all over the world has been blocking or denying or 
uh, poo-pooing the uh, alternative ways of treating this because uh, the money is made in the vaccine and nothing else. And that's a shame. It, 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 it is a shame. And it, it speaks to what has been the, the model and the paradigm within which those huge, huge industries have been able to thrive for many, many years. And, uh, you know, when I look at Dr. Fauci, I mean, I graduated from medical school 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dr. Fauci was just starting at the National Institute of Health at that time. He's been there a long, long time. Yeah. And this is very much of an old school approach. Um, and to the point that you make, I, I do believe there are conflicts of interest with industry. You have people, not just Dr. Fauci, but others that are uh, basically paid by taxpayer money that are receiving patents uh, for the work that they do. Yes. And um, the, you know, the, the model is very much one that is going to drive the rapid development of vaccination and, again, um, pharmaceutical approaches. And so this is just, uh, I think, an example. And the pharmaceutical industry hasn't had a blockbuster in quite a few years. Right. Um, they, but, you know, but when you all have... that they're looking for is, is, you know, it's the wrong model to be trying to cure disease. And so... Um, to, to now be scrambling for a market that can assure 7 billion people are going to be vaccinated is, is, is resurrecting. Um, oh, count me out. Yeah. Count me out. I'm yeah. not getting vaccine. Yeah. Um, uh, the other thing, too, is that uh, the CDC just announced to all states in America that they should prepare for a vaccine by November 1st, which is ridiculous. I mean, it took years to develop an HIV vaccine. It took years yeah. for, to develop any vaccines in the past. Yes. Now they're pushing for this and trying to ram it down the throat. That doesn't make any sense. And they, don't, they, they haven't even gone through phase three testing. You know, they're testing those vaccines on, on people right now, which is highly questionable, to say the least, you know, volunteers. Uh, and... You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're aware that vaccines, uh, previous vaccine, whether it's flu or otherwise, I haven't been very effective, to say the least. Yes. So, um, you know, uh, this is, you know, when you start digging a little bit, all of this is very, um, trying to find the right word, but, um, Let's move back into uh, personal health. Uh, how would you suggest people support their immune system? Well, I, I do think that a lot of what we have learned from COVID over the last several months, Alan, reinforce what we've known about influenza and other infections for, for many, many, many years. But if you look at COVID in particular, the likelihood of becoming very ill from it, the likelihood of, of requiring hospitalization from it, the likelihood of possibly losing one's life as a consequence of it can almost always be traced to underlying chronic complex health issues. And yeah, previous um, ones. What, what we would call um, you know, cardiometabolic issues, being overweight, 
having a high insulin, you know, being a pre-diabetic or a diabetic, having high blood pressure, heart disease. So when you look at the, the epidemiology of COVID, same is true for influenza, and, and, and you could add any chronic disease to that, be it Alzheimer's, right. be it heart disease, be it cancer, that you do tend to see the same underlying metabolic disruptors, prediabetes, diabetes, hypertension, weight, inflammation, the immune system not being well regulated. And so any lifestyle approach, nutrition and otherwise, that places greater attention on how, what can I do to lower my insulin and sugar levels? What can I do to lower my uh, inflammation, to bring my immune system into a place where it's not quite as hypervigilant? Um, what can I do to begin to uh, diminish some weight, particularly around the midsection, which is where inflammation and the fat uh, that we store there tends to be more active biologically. Um, ironically, uh, how can I be uh, connected more, uh, which is a problem right now to, to people, social isolation being a huge risk factor. Um, so we, we know that a lot of the research, nutrition, exercise, physiology, mind-body science um, can powerfully alter those risk factors. And, and so, um, you know, I could get into a lot more detail there, Alan, but, but um, it's quite clear that there's a lot one can do to modify their risk factor, whether it's COVID risk reduction or whether it's general health promotion, it's essentially the same roadmap. Uh, but I, I think this pandemic has very much um, accentuated the risks that these metabolic states have. And if you look at the United States, you're probably talking about two out of three people uh, would fall into that higher risk category. And, and yeah, so yeah. Um, this is all uh, modifiable. Yeah, it was discovered recently actually on the CDC website that uh, the actual death percentage from COVID only is only six six percent versus ninety four percent of other disease, and then COVID comes on top of it, and and of course makes it worse. Yeah. So there's a lot of uh, hoopla around that that uh, you know they've been min misleading us and you know uh, playing with the numbers. And one thing that puzzles me, and that's a, it's a gentle way to say it, is how did the experts managed to shut down the whole economy based on the virus that, although unknown, is really a cousin of the, the original SARS. SARS um, yes, MERS. Right? SARS. And, 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 you know, we've gone through multiple epidemics, and then, yeah, we never shut down the economy, and now we're facing major unemployment, major... Uh, hardship for people and you know of course mostly on the lower end of the social yes. scale and that, to me that just boggles the mind I don't understand how that happened when we we survived through MERS and SARS and H1N1 and 
you know, the yes. bird flu and all that, and we never shut down the economy. So what, in your opinion, caused that? Well, that, that is a, just a critical observation and, and one that uh, is not explained historically. This was truly an unprecedented global sweeping shutdown that, uh, you know, when I, when I look at COVID in our community and not, not unlike most communities, Alan, we, we knew that if we targeted in a more specific way, those at greatest risk, the elders, the sick, yes. those in congregate living, that, that that was really where we needed to be placing most of our uh, resources during those times of, of, of accelerated activity, um, which would not have required shutting everything down. Yeah. Um, you know, people otherwise young and healthy and able to work sh should have been working. Yeah, people uh, at and, risk definitely should have been protected. And, and, and the rest and, of the population just, you know, and that's always how, exactly. That's always how we've, I think, approached uh, influenza in my lifetime. Yeah. Um, you know, you protect the sick. Uh, you know, you, you mask the sick um, yeah. to, to protect those uh, from yes. exposure. And, uh, and, and we know that these are very effective strategies. Um, I, I think we're, we're already seeing this, Alan, but I believe with years and years of, of study, looking back on this, we're going to see that the approach, this global sweeping condemnation of, of normal activity and, and, and treating this sort of one size fits all approach as opposed to a more selective targeted defense, mm -hmm. um, I, I think we're, we're going to see that the consequences of that are going to be far more worse and far more lasting and enduring than the consequences from from the COVID nineteen itself. Yeah. And, so when, so when I, we I look, don't know, I don't know how to explain it other than to say that well, um, I have my I have my own opinion, but you may not um, like it. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, I that. I could I could go there, uh, yes. and, and I and I I've been in the rabbit hole uh, for some yeah. time, and I and I do believe that there are people that control the agenda of this country, uh, yes. uh, that is a very concentrated um, um, level of power, uh, industry, the military industrial complex. And, and clearly there are some who gain by perpetuating global fear. Yes. Uh, there are some who gain by keeping people so distracted that they're not able to see what's happening in front of their eyes. Um, people that are willing to give up their rights, people that are willing to roll up their sleeve and get a shot uh, mm -hmm. with, with this blind trust and blind faith. And so I've no doubt that there are higher uh, powerful mechanisms at play, um, yeah. and and I and I do think our military industrial uh, health complex um, is very much a part of that. And there are amazing, compassionate people that are part of those systems that you know that just have to ride the wave, whether whether they believe or not. Um, right. But but it's very concerning what's happening around the world right now. Right, right. I think it's called mind control, um, um, brainwashing. 
Um, so move, moving on from here, what do you think about the uh, Swedish model of herd immunity? Well, I, I applauded the Swedes when I uh, saw and perceived what I thought was a much more um, um, open, innovative, epidemiologic approach to herd immunity. And, and I know that there's been a lot of controversy as to the, yeah. as to the uh, pluses and minuses of that approach. Uh, and again, I suspect there'll be a lot of longer term data and research that will help us understand um, you know, the pros and cons of that approach. But um, I, from all that I've seen and all that I've read, Alan, they are, uh, while they may have had more mortalities in their elder at-risk population, um, you know, people in Sweden still adhere to, to many of, of the restrictions. It was just more voluntary and less mandated. And, and maybe in hindsight, they could have done a bit more um, protection of some of those elder at-risk folks. But I, I don't believe they're, they're none the worse um, in terms of uh, the big picture. And uh, economically, I, I don't know if, they're, if they've taken as big a hit as many other countries as a consequence. Mm. No, no, not that I understand. It's, it's fairly similar, and and yet they did not shut down the economy for that no. their economy. Yes. Um, my my concern now is the consequences of the shutting down the economy, both economically and also mentally and emotionally, on people. Yes, that are not just struggling. There are you know some people are going to lose their homes. They're going to lose their place to live, they're going to end up on the street. You know, I mean, you're probably aware that the average American doesn't have $1,000 saved up. So uh, when you can't pay your rent and you can't pay your mortgage and you, you're in debt over, over your head and you lose your jobs, I don't know, we're up to how many millions of people unemployed now. The, 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 the back side effect of that is going to be tremendous. I read an article recently that there's actually almost as many deaths from suicide, you know, violence, all the side effects than there is from COVID. So what's your take on the yeah. emotional and mental side of things? Well, I agree with you, Alan, and, and, I'm, and I'm convinced we haven't seen the full scope and magnitude of that, but but thus far, it has had a hugely negative impact. Um, we know that um, even before the pandemic, um, the um, disparities of, of care and outcomes uh, was already a, a huge challenge. And of course, unemployment was as low as it had been in maybe generations before this pandemic hit. Mm -hmm. um, income levels in the U.S. across the board were going up for many. Um, but, but this, when you look at the direct impact on health, and uh, there's some really good research in this area from the Rockefeller uh, University in New York City, uh, Bruce McEwen, uh, who's the director of the neuroendocrine lab at Rockefeller University. He has been studying the impact of environmental stress on health uh, and what he calls allostatic load. 
allostatic load is the magnitude of stressors in one's environment, which could certainly be economic, could certainly be uh, social isolation, loneliness, depression, could certainly be uh, substance use, which we know has gone up dramatically from alcohol to opiates, cocaine, um, heroin. Uh, if you look at um, um, what we know for many people uh, is food insecurity, the inability to know where your next meal is coming from, homelessness. Yep. All of these things create tremendous allostatic load. And right. when you look at the biology of those individuals, not surprisingly, it is a biology of fight flight. These individuals are literally running for their lives 24 seven, every day, day after day after day. And we know that that's going to dramatically accentuate the, the negative health outcomes and the disparities that already exist. And we know that many people on the edge who lost their jobs, um, some who, who lost their marriages, some who, um, you know, have lost their inability to feed themselves, uh, you know, um, and to your point, behavioral health, mental health issues are off the charts. Um, and so this allostatic load is going to be a very enduring and long process. And we also know, Alan, and, and please, uh, reel me in if I, if I start to talk too much. But when we look at the research of epigenetics, if you look at a, a, a mother who is carrying a, a baby during a time of great environmental stress, and historical examples of this were the, you know, the, the hungers in, in you know, Nazi Germany, World War II, yeah. Uh, in more contemporary times, uh, the, the, the Quebec um, ice storm, which kept people essentially trapped for about six weeks um, without access to food. And so we know that these profound environmental stressors will take a, an unborn child and begin to alter their DNA through epigenetics. And when you follow those children after they've been born into, into childhood and early adulthood, you see these dramatic increases in um, obesity and attention deficit, depression, um, you know, across the board. And, and so this is going to have a generational effect based on the epigenetics alone that I think, um, you know, the magnitude of which is going to be profound. Um, and it's going to be very interesting to follow that. So that is a, you know, this is, you're literally changing the DNA of a generation right. um, that is now pre-programmed to an environment that they're going to be in perpetual fight flight in their in interaction right. with. And, and while that and, may be helpful in the short term to survive, it, it is very disruptive and profoundly uh, negative on health longer and, term and that's what right. we're looking at and this level of stress is also affecting your immune system it weakens your immune system yes so it's a compounding situation Absolutely. and keep keeping in mind that typically the the, the kind of people will be affected will be already in bad health to start with because they stuff themselves with bad quality food because that's what is cheapest so it just adds exactly. up to the problem yeah exactly so um, moving on to 
even more controversial. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. Yeah, I will not spare you. Um, what's your take on what's, what's your take on wearing masks? So, uh, you know, at, at, at first, I was very uh, dubious and skeptical of, of the issue of, of wearing a mask, particularly for those who were asymptomatic. Uh, yes. Again, uh, um, uh, it, it made more sense to me to be focusing in a more targeted way, um, masking the sick, masking those who were symptomatic, yeah. uh, as opposed to this sort of global uh, recommendation uh, and as, and as I, I think you know, most people know, certainly in the United States, uh, the, you know, the Center for Disease Control did not recommend mask wearing. Oh, wow, well, yes. Uh, and, and, and then, of course, they did a 180-degree you know, uh, turnaround, I think, as the numbers went up and as the fear factor continued to grow. Um, so I, um, I, I personally adhere to the guidelines uh, in my state, in my community, and you know I'm in clinical settings all the time, uh, and and in my work setting I have to wear a mask, and I and I do think I am at at risk of possibly exposing others, and so I you know I do think there's some value to that, um, but in in social situations if I'm not um, um, you know, around lots of people in very confined settings. I, I won't have a mask on. Right, um, right. I, I, do, uh, I do encounter people who, who I do think uh, at times can struggle with it, either from respiratory issues or uh, I see people driving their cars. They're all alone in their car. They've got a mask on. Yeah, and I think, wow, you know, what, what's going on with that? Um, brainwashing. Um, you know, brainwashing, yeah. yeah brainwashing. You know, like, and I do think it, 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 when you, um, it becomes this uh, reinforcing argument um, as the numbers go down in certain communities that um, have mandates, they will attribute the numbers coming down to the mandate and, and, and people adhering to those mandates. And so um, even though there are many reasons one can see a natural decline, it, either through herd immunity and um, through, through other factors, the natural history of the virus, uh, most improvements will be attributed to those measures and become the basis upon which those recommendations become even more uh, firm. Um, it's a tricky yeah. one. I can, I can tell you if I show up at work tomorrow and, <clears throat> I, I, uh, and I'm not wearing a mask, um, you know, I'll lose my job, uh, mm -hmm. my, uh, you know, quickly. That's a shame. That's a shame because it's a result of, you know, the message being um, applied uh, in a blanket as a blanket to everyone when yes. it's not necessary. So my, my position on that is if I go into a store and I put the mask on out of respect. Yes. Once I, I'm outside, I do not wear the mask. I do not wear the mask while I'm walking or running or, or driving for, you know, I see bicyclers, bicycling people with the mask on, I say, how can you breathe with that thing on? Yeah. I mean, you're already doing heavy exercise and you're limiting your oxygen intake and, and you know, not to mention some other issues that could happen from continually breathing your own, you yes. know, recycling your own breath. 
You're right. Which is exactly, Ellen. Right. I'm sure you're aware of the research of people yes. like Tom Cowan and others uh, looking at this phenomenon of exosomes, which are something our bodies produce in response to environmental threats, and uh, it can look just like a, a virus. And uh, um, th there have been a lot of sweeping global recommendations that I think all of which could be looked at with suspicion, uh, particularly with, with what we know about the, uh, I, I believe the power and appropriateness of targeting, um, as we've always done, those at greatest risk, targeting situations where you know the concentration of people within a particular space, uh, you know, will be above a certain threshold. To me, that is intuitive and it makes good sense. But, but outside of that, um, yeah, my, my daughter's a, a school teacher uh, here in the US. She teaches third grade. And you know, most of these children rely heavily on facial expression yes. uh, as they learn their language and as, and as they're developing socially. And all of those social, the power, we are so genetically wired to be connected to facial expression that for the last several months, most of us have been faceless in our interactions with others. And that, that's just a whole other dimension of this that I think we probably yeah. have very limited understanding <clears throat> of. I think that's uh, this probably the saddest part of it is that we are teaching our children to be afraid constantly and, and to obey without question. Yes. I mean, currently from what I'm reading, and granted, I don't pay attention to the mainstream media. I tend to find my information outside that. Yes. Uh, you know, going to college or going to school nowadays is like going to prison. You know, they're forcing these kids to stay in their room. I mean, they pay all this money to go to college, right? And yes. then they, they stick them in their, in their dorm room, one person per room allowed, or they are forced to, you know, live outside the campus. And they spend their whole day in front of a screen. Yes. And they won't even, they, they're not even allowed to get their meals from the uh, cafeteria. They have to, it's, it's been delivered to them. And there's, yes. I read a couple of articles regarding a lot of complaints from both parents and students that say it's like, it's like a, it's like a camp here. It's like a, uh, concentration camp you know they are not allowed to do anything there's no socializing allowed on the other hand some governments cities and states allow thousands of people to demonstrate in the streets without mask with or without mask so i mean the contradiction here another aspect which i, I found very uh, troubling is that they allow they allow hundreds of people to go into Walmart and, and you know shopping and, and all that, and yet they won't allow people to go to their church, which is for a lot of people religion is a very strong uh, support, emotional support, and yes. so yeah, it 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 all feels very planned, very organized, all of this yes. to weaken the the human spirit. Yes, it it is. It is not hard to make that case, um, Alan. And I, in my community, like many, it was much easier to get a bottle of vodka uh, than it was to sit and worship uh, in a sanctuary where you felt safe. 
and supported. Um, and to some extent that, you know, that continues to be the case. And I do think uh, while, while there are some mandates that leave all people needing to be mindful of what they're doing and, and, and where and when they're doing it, uh, that it's never been more important for people to take matters into their own hands. And, and, and I know that's what your mission is all about. Uh, really learn as much as you can. And the more you can learn outside of mainstream media, the better off you are. I mean, that's right. just a health promoting tact anyway, is just ignore the media. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, that, that's, um, but I, I do think that um, I do see many, many people who I think have been awakened by this and are questioning um, a lot of what's going on. I, I see demonstrations in, uh, you know, Denmark and, and Germany and other Germany. parts of the world. And certainly in Quebec, in Spain, people, there's the a backlash. People there's a backlash. Are, there's are a big one. There's a big one planned for September 12 in France. There's yeah. one here planned for September the 15, basically demonstrating against the mask, against the control by the government. Yes. We, we are, for example, here in Austin, we are technically, if we go by numbers, we are in a green zone. So the, the least dangerous. And yet the, the city council and the mayor insist that we stay at level five, the highest dangerous level. Yes. This, is, this is nothing but control of the masses. Yes. And that's I'm in unacceptable. The green zone. I, absolutely. Now, I'm in a green zone as well uh, here in Massachusetts. Um, because I'm a, a physician, I'm considered an essential health worker. So I can, I don't have to self quarantine if I travel out of the state and come back as far as work goes. Mm -hmm. But if I travel down to Florida and I come home, I can't go to the grocery store, uh, without risking a $500 a day fine unless I can demonstrate that I had a, a nasal swab, a test that was negative within mm. 72 hours of returning home. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, you look at our local college campuses, these students are all in their dorms for two weeks doing, you know, just doing nothing but looking at a screen as you, as you yeah. said. Um, so I, I do think um, the, it, it comes back right Alan to this, um, one size fits all sweeping. Um, ours is a community that has done a good job for the most part of keeping things in check. There are some things that we ought to be able to do in our community that we're not able to do because we are part of the state laws and, and, and regulations. And, um, you know, it's, it's, we, I, I see this as an epidemic of fear uh, more than a viral uh, epidemic or pandemic. And yes, yes, uh, and, uh, and that is that is the that is the the pandemic that's going to take a long, long time to, to yeah. Improve. What what is what is impressing me the most is how influenced the people are. For, as a small example, uh, I am part of a group of uh, petanque players. Petanque is a ball game that typically we play two or three times a week in, in Austin. There's a group of about anywhere from 30 to 40 typically that plays and we 
we usually plays in groups of six and you know separate from each other that is normal times that is yes since the beginning of this there's only two of us two out of these 40 people that show up to play and we don't wear masks we don't wear gloves and we're both older and we just said you know we're strong we're healthy we survived pandemics before there's no reason to be afraid and yet nobody else is showing up yeah. so the 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 fear control is amazing it's amazing it's amazing it's and it's I, it is profound i i never thought i would see the day where where fear would be as profound as it is right now so moving on uh you know the cdc and uh and the media is already preparing us for the second wave what's yes. your take on that i've yet to see evidence of a a true second wave um i think most of the areas in the united states that have been active of late just represent more of the sort of spread this is kind of like a wildfire yeah, um, and it, it's going to it's going to find your community uh, sooner or later. Uh, so I've yet to see any evidence um, epidemiologically of a, a second wave. Um, um, you know, so I you know it, it, as the rabbit hole goes, um, um, Alan, I don't think there's anything about COVID nineteen uh, where we could look back at historical comparisons in terms of natural viruses and draw those extrapolations. I don't think COVID-19, um, well, let me just say, I, you know, it, in my view, it came from a laboratory. Yeah. Um, and uh, Luc Montagnier, the Nobel laureate right there in France, yes, who, yes. who elucidated HIV, um, was quite courageous and his coming out very soon uh, clearly showing that there are segments in this RNA that, that are not native to a coronavirus. No, no uh, it contains HIV. Um, it contains HIV. I mean, you know, this, um, you know, it, it may have started in nature, but it, it, it was um, enhanced. And, and so I do think a second wave, in my view, would imply uh, an intentional agenda um, more than it would be the natural history of, uh, of an infection over which people are, are gaining herd immunity. But it's a narrative that plays well um, because uh, you know, it, once there's even a slight uptick of activity, um, it's going to, once you have projected worst case scenarios as everyone has so, so uh, effectively done, it will become easy to make the case to shut things back down as you start to reopen. Well, that's that's what I figured. That's the plan. And you know what they based that on? They based on the 1913-1914 uh, Spanish flu, right? Because it, it came back. So they've been warning us ahead of time. Oh, it's coming back! It's coming back! You know, like yeah. the sky is going to fall, and that's going to give them an excuse to shut us down again. Uh, at that point, I believe that the oh, I hope that the people will not accept that. I hope so, but I do worry about it, Alan. I, I, I do think, um, I mean, I don't want to sound judgmental, but I, I do think the pandemic has, um, there, there are a lot of people, certainly in the US that are sleepwalking 
And, and I do think that um, the extent to which a lot of them wouldn't hesitate to roll up their sleeves for the whatever vaccine is coming down the pike is, is likely to be the case. I know that some of the early surveys are suggesting that there'll be a core of resistant folks, yeah. but I can imagine you won't even be able to travel out of state, get on an airplane without some verification that you've had that vaccine. I do worry that um, uh, while there may be some resistance, it, it is still going to be the minority of, of people out there. And that's concerning. Yeah, we, we, um, we have about half the country already saying that they will get vaccinated. Mm. Uh, some other people are, you know, questionable. And uh, there is a core, I would say, 25% that's basically say, hell no, they'll, they'll, yeah. they won't, they won't that's touch what me. I'm I'm seeing very um, similar numbers, Alan. And then, and then, of course, if they're mandated, you know, then that just becomes a decision. Do you? Do, yeah. I don't Is think, it, no, I don't think they will. I'm, I mean, Trump is very clear on that. He said it will not be mandated. It will only be voluntary. Yes. And, and legally, they cannot, I mean, already found paperwork to deny being Force, forcibly, um, uh, you know, vaccinated. So, uh, if need be, I think we're looking at a a, a series of clash act, class action suits against whatever the local government, yes. whatever. I mean, we're we're already here on the small yes. level. We're already talking about doing this in Austin against the mayor and the city council. Yes, because these orders are not law. They haven't been voted by Congress, whether it's the state Congress or otherwise. And basically they're just, uh, you know, tyrannical orders based on fake science yes. or, or fear. And I, I will not fall for that. Yes. Well, and I, I think you're right. And that is already happening here as well. In Massachusetts, our governor, just re uh, required, mandated, this is mandated influenza vaccine for all children attending public schools. Completely unprecedented. No. Not acceptable, uh, not acceptable. And that's, that's not acceptable. I totally agree with that. Um, and I do think there's already activity to begin to you know, pursue legal channels. Uh, and I'm sure it's gonna come to that, but that, that that is what I'm predicting. We're going to begin to see, um, yeah. you know, in, the, in well, the United States, each state does have that sort of autonomy. And I could imagine um, some states, particularly states that are more liberal, like California, like Massachusetts, where those are the, the sorts of, um, of things that right. they're going to try to, uh, you know, make happen. So it's going to be I'm, an interesting. I'm seeing more and more homeschooling in the future. Yes. More yes. and more. Very much As, so. If nothing else, as a protest, you know, to against forcible, they tried with the measles recently in California to force everyone to be vaccinated, mm -hmm. and even people in California revolted against that. Yes, and typically they they tend to, you know, being a liberal state, they tend to agree with the government, but not yes. this time. I mean, when when it comes to our children, moms will fight back. Yes, you can count on that. Absolutely. Right. At least they awaken moms. Yes. 
Okay, I think I've done enough damage here. <laughs> <laughs> you were actually Mark? very gentle, Alan. I, I, uh, I, yeah, I, I could have gone a little deeper, but I, I appreciate it. Oh, oh uh, we can go there. There, there, I mean, there are just so many uh, pieces to this, but I... We, we, I are, uh, we, are, we are kind of tiptoeing with our guests because we have definitely, we have opinions on the issue. Yes. And, but on the other hand, we have to consider our guests' opinion. And so we, we kind of nudge Mm -hmm. And if if the guest goes in that direction, then great, great. Yeah. you know it's it's exciting. So yes, uh, we definitely I I believe and I think that Mark believes uh, Mark Markson agrees that this is a global um, a, a global organized globally organized uh, plan to get all of us vaccinated and achieved and and manipulated and controlled by you know banning us from traveling and so on and so forth unless you're cheap or uh so yeah i mean we could definitely go deeper into that but i don't want to and i don't disagree with any of that alan i just right. just for the public record i okay i do walk a fine line sometimes uh um in a in a in a and i and i give so many of my colleagues who get out there and challenge the conventional uh, narrative um uh, understanding the the consequences they confront in their professional lives and um, but it's uh, I, I, I think people uh, the more people are kept distracted and fearful um, the more at risk of relinquishing all of their fundamental rights and yes. and and continuing to um, idly support an agenda um, an agenda that's not new, one that's been around for for millennia. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, look at that, the look look at the Patriot Act. That was you know, that was the beginning of taking our civil liberties from exactly. away from us. The the reason I was uh, to be honest with you, uh, to be careful with you, because I know you're part of the Western medicine type of establishment, and I wasn't sure what the position was on that, yes. and I didn't want to push you to say something that you could uh, influence your, you know, your, your working environment that is, you know, out of respect for what yeah. you do. So um, yeah, thank, thank you for. You, yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, but you know, I, I um, the, the, the whole ancestral health and and our and our remarkable human resilience and and independence and autonomy and latitude and just i mean all of the things that have have made this uh such a remarkable um human uh lineage is yeah. has probably never been at greater jeopardy than it is right now and so i do appreciate more than ever in my own life how i apply this um, sometimes I'm a little more careful and selective with what I say, depending on the context, but I, I have never felt more um, passionate about paleo principles, empowerment, really waking the eyes of individuals and shaking people up. Uh, this, this, is our, this is the wake up call if ever we were going to receive one. And so- yeah. I, I mean, that may, be, that may be the silver lining is that because we are forced to stay and 
idle, we are, we have more time to think about all of this and, and, and consider whether all of these constraints are worth following. You know, and yes. people are opening their eyes and there's been a lot of documentaries coming out denouncing what's been going on behind the scene. I don't know if you've seen Plandemic yes. 1 and 2 yes. um, and, and other similar, you know, uh, and they, uh, was it the frontline uh, doctors and so on and so forth. And, yes. and these people are putting their jobs in jeopardy by exposing yes. what, what's, what's going on, really going on. Absolutely. So thank you for sharing with that. Now, uh, Mark number two, up to you now. <laughs> Mark number two, jolly good. Um, before we go any further, Mark, it's um, probably just as good, because you, you've given us a load of information already, it's probably just as good to uh, find out where we can find out more information about you and, and the sort of things that you do and the health modalities you promote. Sure. Where can we find out more about you? Yeah, thank you, Mark. Um, the, the best place would be my website, which is the healthedgepodcast.com. Okay. Uh, the health, if you know anyone who Googles Health Edge or whatever search engine you, you like to use, uh, we'll, we'll get to that site. And uh, there's a lot of information on there, it's all um, free of industry support. and. Uh, um, objective and and a lot of fun and and so um, um, you know I have a couple books that are out on Amazon I've written you know I wrote them a while ago they're still quite relevant but I you know I I don't always promote them but if anyone's interested one is called the savvy patient and it's really uh, it was a book written for uh, the Amer American healthcare consumer 15 years ago uh, and it's as relevant today as it was when I wrote it then to try to help them make sense of this behemoth of a system um, that, uh, you know, mo most people even today feel lost in. And um, so, um, and, and then I, I wrote a book called, uh, it's all in your, it's all in your head. And it was really an early look at epigenetics and neuroplasticity and uh, things that I, I think and talk a lot about today. And so there's a lot of information out there. We've got a YouTube channel with some video content. And so those are the best sources. Super, thank you very much. Now, sort of listening to the conversation and knowing that you're someone who very much wants to promote prevention and sort of good health through more natural means, if I can put it that way, I sense a bit of frustration about how, you know, as, as we're talking about COVID, as how COVID has been handled by, um, well, let's say, mainstream uh, medicine. Mm -hmm. um, yes. <laughs> what, what, are, what are the things that most frustrates you and how, how would you like to see them uh, done better? Yeah, that's a great question, Mark. Uh, you know, this, the, the perception that has been etched into the psyches of certainly everyone here in the U.S. that there is a, uh, a natural threat out there called COVID-19 it's coming to a community near you. Uh, uh, there's nothing you can do but lock yourself in a bunker and do all you can to avoid contact with others and say your prayers that this won't find you or, or someone you love. Uh, and until which time we have the vaccine, right? Uh, or, or, or the drugs with the vaccine, 
um, you are going to continue to be an innocent bystander doing all you can to avoid this threat. So that has been the, the paradigm, the, the mindset, the framework, um, which is, you know, Alan and I talked about for the last hour has done nothing but perpetuate fear um, and a sense of hopelessness, or, you know, a sense of disempowerment, as opposed to uh, nature will continue to subject us to threats um, as a species. It always has, it always will. And our legacy is one of being able to prepare and empower by virtue of the choices that we make in each and every moment of our life, how we eat and how we move and how we question, uh, accepting nothing at face value um, as we uh, you know, contemplate how we manage our stress, how we sleep. Every choice that we make, particularly if it's a choice that's compatible with the lineage, this, this environmental uh, and evolutionary biologic legacy is really where we can begin to empower ourselves and we can reduce our risk of a serious COVID um, infection by 80, 90, 95% through simple proven lifestyle interventions. And so that, that in my view is the single greatest disconnect is we have failed to frame this as a, a truly something to be concerned about. I'm not mitigating that. Um, but for the overwhelming majority of people on this planet, this is not a serious life-threatening threat. For those for which it is, there are important steps that can be taken. For those at risk, there are many things one can do each and every day to dramatically reduce that risk. And oh, by the way, uh, reduce your risk of all chronic complex diseases like diabetes and obesity and hypertension and heart disease and Alzheimer's. And so um, it's, a, it's, it's a roadmap that many humans have followed in the past. Uh, and it's, I, I do think we're a species with amnesia. Uh, we tend to forget where we've come from. And um, certainly the media and the, and the medical and, 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 and uh, the medical and the military industrial complex do all they can to make it harder for you to remember where you've come from. And, and so to, those to me are just fundamental um, issues right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned there we can, we can take steps to mitigate all of these risks, if you like. What yes. do you do personally in order to, um, let's say, uh, you know, improve your, your immune system and so forth? Yes. So nutritionally, I definitely follow a, a, a lower carb, um, higher fat paleo lifestyle. It's something I've been doing for, for many, many years. It's clearly in 2020, the most effective nutritional strategy for lowering sugar and insulin levels, two of the greatest and strongest predictors of adverse health outcomes. Um, it's clearly one of the most effective evidence-based strategies for um, losing weight, particularly around the midsection, what we would call visceral fat. And it's clearly one of the most effective strategies for lowering inflammation um, or this hypervigilance in our immune responses. Uh, and so nutritionally, I try to be very careful with flour, sugar, any grain. Um, I, I consume very few grains. 
it, it's traditional paleo. I, you know, I will have some dairy, but I do tend to get that from Jersey cows. Uh, it's an A2 dairy source, an, an A2 being a, a type of casein that's a bit more compatible with human health. I don't drink a lot of dairy, but, but when I do, um, it's pasture-raised cows, Jersey cows. Um, uh, it, it's, a, it's a different milk, and I drink raw milk. So, you know, sometimes I will drink raw milk which is probably the best form of dairy for one that drinks dairy, but I limit it. Um, I also very much practice uh, time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting. I think this is to a very powerful evolutionary strategy. And so um, I will tend to, on most days, Mark, time-restrict my meals to 10 hours. Um, and I'm trying to align that window of consumption with uh, somewhere between sun rising and sun setting. So that might look a little bit different this time of year than it will look over the winter months. Um, but we know that circadian rhythm, circadian entrainment and meal timing being an important um, driver of circadian entrainment is a very powerful way to enhance one's immune resiliency uh, to um, um, what's called autophagy, you're recycling your cells. Um, uh, intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating is a lot like a, it's a lot like exercise. It's a stressor, but it's just enough to turn on all those resiliency systems. We have all this software uh, that's embedded in us, but modern life turns most of those programs off. Um, they're not enabled. So intermittent fasting a low carb, higher fat paleo approach, um, I think are powerful um, resiliency upregulating strategies. Um, I'm very into light. And so uh, much like meal timing is an important uh, predictor of circadian rhythms, uh, light quality. Um, so of course this time of year, I'm encouraging people to get as much natural light as they can. Um, um, you know, you don't want to sunburn, but outside of that, get as much unprotected sunshine as you can. Those earlier morning hours are ideal times. Uh, within a few hours of sunrising, you get more blue light. Blue light turns your biologic clocks on. It is our on switch. Every human that's ever walked this planet has used that signal to turn their systems on toward the end of the day late afternoon, evening, you get less of that blue light and more of that orange, red, uh, yellow light. And so uh, the more you can do that naturally without sunglasses, getting more uh, skin exposure, powerfully health promoting uh, factors. Over the fall winter season, particularly when you live at northern latitudes as, as, as we do, I recommend a light box, um, a full spectrum light box uh, this is um, 10,000 lux, might run about $40. Um, 20 to 30 minutes of that in the morning as you're drinking your coffee or tea. Uh, you don't have to be staring at it, but as long as you're near it, as long as you're within a few feet, that will mimic spring, summer, sunrise. And toward the end of the day, I recommend people use more of a warmer light source in the rooms that they spend most of their time in, like a warm LED or a warm halogen, which has very little blue light, 
and more of that orange yellow. Um, so that, that's lighting uh, that can um, create more circadian synchronization um, and, and very powerful and inexpensive uh, ways to uh, leverage uh, human biology. And we know that immune resilience um, is compromised when you have disruptive circadian patterns. And so um, light and meal timing can be powerful ways to um, synchronize and, and entrain, really great uh, for health. I do a lot of meditation, simple meditation, um, you know, a few minutes of just, you know, some breath, and guided imagery, um, and I and I use positive imagery to try to neutralize all of this negativity out there. I tell folks to to um, avoid your typical media sources. Um, the more you can separate from that, the better you will feel. Um, trust you know, trust nothing, and do your homework. Uh, um, and and it's intellectually stimulating, right? We know that that's important for health and for the brain to be questioning, to be pushing those edges and to be finding good podcasts like this where, where you, can, you can be inspired to, to do that. Um, you know, movement. Uh, and again, uh, I, I always tell folks, out, being outdoors is where it's at. If you can, the more time you spend in nature, the better. Um, savor the flowers, savor the colors. Um, um, move as much as you can in those naturally lit environments. And those are, I think, just enormously powerful uh, lifestyle interventions. And, and yeah, there are some supplements. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, I might recommend uh, some zinc. Um, zinc is, you know, these are, these are evidence-based supported um, um, interventions uh, that we know can be very helpful. As little as uh, 25 to 30 milligrams of zinc per day can be very effective um, at reducing infection risk. Uh, the same can be said for vitamin D, which you know, we know at low levels, vitamin D um, does put people at risk. And the majority of people who have succumbed from COVID have had very low vitamin D levels. And of course, they're, instant, they're in these indoor environments all day long. They get, you know, you know the story. Um, mm. So those are, those are just some things off the top that I think are powerfully um, health promoting. Excellent, excellent, thank you for that. Uh, something maybe a, a little bit more uh, controversial, controversial, controversial even. Um, I'll just go and put my teeth in instead of my mother's. Um, if we go down the line that, you know, that there is a, an insidious move to get everybody vaccinated and if you don't get it you, as you mentioned earlier you can't travel and this that, and the other um have you noticed that um the electronic tracking that we're subject to now is going up through you know apps on our phone and that type of thing um what do you see the purpose of that might be yeah you know it's it's uh frightening mark and it and it falls into this category of this insidious re relinquishing of one's uh sort of rights and um i look at a country like china where they know where everyone is at on the grid at any point in time uh facial recognition you know through satellites they can they can pick you out of a crowd um almost anywhere in that country and I, and i do think um, uh, when you look at the technology in general 
and the extent to which so much of our personal information is now out there, um, where we are, when we are, who we're with, uh, is a scary proposition. And, and, and I know you, the two of you are well aware of this. The level of censorship that exists out there now is, is worse than, than ever. Um, you know, there are some, some terms you can't even use without getting your podcast pulled or, or your content eliminated. And so, um, you know, I think there, there are just blatant examples of freedoms that are becoming more and more constrained. And I, I worry about that. I worry that, um, um, while these may be framed as contact tracing applications, uh, that a time will come and it may already exist today where um, people will know where I am, when I am, and um, uh, it's hard for me to see on the balance of public health and uh, uh, relinquishing uh, human rights that that can fall on the, on the better side of what's best for people in general, so. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it may be a little bit left wing, but um, have you seen the reports in the press about the New Zealand government's um, decision to basically lock people up if they prove positive for the, the COVID virus using these very accurate, he says, sarcastically, yes. COVID testing kits? Yes. Yeah, I have followed that. And, uh, you know, you raise a really good point just in your sarcasm. Uh, Mark, you know, these, like the vaccine, which is going to come to marketplace with very little science, most of the tests that got emergency approval by the FDA are equally uh, um, limited in their accuracy. And so uh, um, that's a whole nother issue. Uh, but when you're making public health decisions based on the results of tests that are inherently flawed and inaccurate, you've got a, you've got a compounded issue there. Uh, my understanding with New Zealand is these were very small numbers of cases that came up. And again, um, instead of a more targeted, maybe approach to try to limit extent or spread of that, it, it, it it's becomes easy to just globally bring things down again. And I, and I think that's an example of what could happen in mm. other countries, should there be a resurgence uh, this fall or winter. Yeah, yes. I mean, really, then you want to make sure that um, or, you know, we want to make sure that we don't present ourselves as or in an at-risk group. So, yes. To to that end, what would you say are the the three most effective things that people can do to um, to totally mitigate the risk, if that's at all possible? Well, we, we certainly touched on a, on a handful, Mark. I, I would certainly start with um, just healthy nutrition um, and, and certainly any principle that reduces or eliminates high glycemic foods, those foods that are going to raise sugar and insulin, mostly processed flour, grain-based sugar, that, that to me would be a... a, a, a a sweet spot on the bullseye uh, uh, to, to be focusing on in terms of a resiliency. Um, then I would say more natural light, more time outdoors, just movement outdoors in general. Very healthy. That would be one of my top three. Um, and then the third would probably uh, fall on the side of um, 
sort of positive psychology, the stress management, this, this um, conscious awareness that, that this, is a, this is a war of psychology. Um, this, is a, this is a war of consciousness, a crisis of consciousness. And so the best antidote to that is to be more aware of that it's happening. And, and I think in doing so, uh, one can begin to adopt practices um, to render themselves a bit more resilient to that, to that disruptive uh, interference. And so, I, I, you know, I guess those would be very high on my list. Super. So nicely encapsulated. Thank you. Because, mm. um, I mean, there, there is a tendency, we notice, for people to sort of have a look at the first five minutes of a podcast and zoom to the end just to get the conclusions. <laughs> Which yes. brings us nicely to the point that we are coming to an end. Is there anything uh, we should have asked and we didn't? A great interview. You, you guys are so thorough and so, um, I, I, so I'm very grateful to have been invited to share with you again. Uh, it's a real gift. Um, and uh, I think, you know, th this issue of education and uh, awakening and awareness is, I, I think, uh, one of the great gifts that we can impart in, in the world. Uh, I think it was the Dalai Lama who once said, to pay full attention to another is a generous gift. And so as, as I, I, I see people like yourself as light workers, light beings, um, challenging the status quo. And, uh, and, and I think that's such an empowering message uh, to be getting out there. And so whether it's in our day-to-day -day lives with our families, with our colleagues, leading by example, um, leading in a way that, that isn't fearful, you know, just as you were describing, Alan, you know, being maybe just one of a handful of people participating in that recreational event, but you're setting the example as a human being uh, who will live their lives uh, under their own terms. And that, I think the more we can walk the talk, the better we all become. Indeed, indeed. Thank you for that. Alan, back to you. Well, I was wondering, are you sure you're not a politician because you're very good at flattering people? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, so thank you. I, I, I don't know if that's a compliment, but uh, so, so it's, it, uh, flattering is one way to put it, Alan. I like to think of it as influence. Yes, um, okay. and I took it very positively, thank you. At, at, at the end of the day, I think most human behavior emerges from the perceptions of the human um, you know, who, who is behaving. And yeah. so 99% uh, of what I do is to try to influence behaviors in others. Uh, and I do that uh, by understanding and transforming their perceptions in their minds. And, uh, uh, and if that serves me and them, uh, so, you know, even better. Uh, so uh, yeah, some would call it schmoozing, but uh, I tell my right. colleagues, it's all about human influence. Of course, of course. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you again, Mark, for sharing your opinions on the local Philly show. And uh, as we say, as we say in Texas, I vote for Santé, yo. <laughs> thank you, Mark. Thank you very much.